All right, we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. And the title of today's sermon is, Sinners Repent. (laughs) Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Uh, Sinners. Isn't that a fun word to say? Sinners. Everyone just say it with me, just creepily. Sinners. It's a fun word. (laughs) The soaked preacher muttered angrily under his breath as he entered the church. Goodness, what's wrong? Asked his secretary when he came into the office, dripping wet. It's raining like crazy out there, said the preacher, and I can't find my umbrella anywhere. I I had it here at the church last week, and I think one of this Sneaky congregation stole my umbrella. Well, I'm not going to stand for it. This morning, I'm going to give an old-fashioned fire and brimstone sermon reminding them of the fiery fate that awaits sinners. I'll put the fear of God in them. Then I'll recite the Ten Commandments. Ooh, yeah. And when I get to the one about stealing, I guarantee the thief is going to break down and, and beg for my repenters. Or my, <laughs> my forgiveness. I got ahead. Sinners, repent. Rep- what did I even say? Repent. <laughs> trying to be dramatic and I failed. All right. An hour later. After all the preaching and condemning, after the service, he came back to his office and his secretary's like, did it work? Did the thief come when you got to the, the commandment about stealing? Did he, did he confess his sin? No, the preacher said. When I got to the one about adultery, I remembered where I left my umbrella. Ooh, even preachers are sinners, right? (laughs) Hopefully not like that. But Jesus didn't come to this world to show us that we're a bunch of idiots. Did you know that? He didn't do that. He he didn't come simply to tell us how bad we are, um, how angry God was about our sin. Um, You see, the law had already done that. The law had already told us how much we are enable, incapable of doing all that is perfect in God's sight. You guys have heard of the Ten Commandments, right? And if you have heard them, then you should be fully convinced that you are a sinner. We're going to say that word a lot today, so I'm going to try to emphasize it. Sinner. That you are broken and weak and tragically hopeless and guilty, just a sinner. Some have this image of God that, um, have you guys ever heard of that that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? By um, Jonathan Edwards. It's a a good sermon. It's a good sermon. But some people um, have that, that that's the only image of God. That he is a God that's just waiting to punish that he is, he's waiting uh, to just pour out all the punishment that the law demands, that, we, that, that 
if you misstep, if you do the wrong thing, man, God is just ready to disqualify you. Just kick you out of his family. And I think that's a really tragic way to see God, to view God. God is not looking for a way to kick you out of his family. He's, he's looking at a way to include you in his family. He's making a way to include you in his family. That's the real image of God. And where do I get that image? From the image of God, Jesus. That's how he acted all the time. So do you guys want the good news or the bad news first? I heard bad news. Well, too bad. I'm giving the bad news. All right. So the law, the bad news is that the law is so good at convincing us that we are sinners. It's a special skill or ability that the law possesses to make you feel like crud, to make you feel like a failure. That is what the law is great at. And, And do we need that? Yeah, we actually do need that. It, that actually helps us to get to where we need to be. But, but the law is super good at it. The law is not good news. Do you know that? Laws, if you put the Ten Commandments up on your wall, you're not putting good news up on your wall. You're putting a standard that you'll never meet, and, and it will only speak condemnation to you. Now, is it, is it wrong? Is there anything wrong with the law? No, it's just not good news. The law is perfect. It's just not good news to me. If we simply, uh, I'm sorry, the law simply declares and proves that we are sinners. That we fail to measure up to the perfect standard of God. Since God is perfect, he can't accept anything less than perfect as a standard for his people, for his heaven, for his earth, for anything that exists. He can't accept it. And this is bad news for us. And so we, because we have all broken his law, we are all sinners. Nobody looks at the Ten Commandments and thinks, I'm perfect. I've done it all. There is nothing wrong with me. Nobody looks, nobody ever thinks that unless they're super conceited or have a real false view of themselves, right? There's nothing wrong with these 10 commandments. It's just a standard that is too high. It's right. And we are wrong. We are the sinners. It shows us what sin is but we are the sinners, right? So now we get to the good news. The good news is that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, right? So rejoice, sinners, fellow sinners of the world. Unite in rejoicing and accepting God's mission, God's plan to save us, right? Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly. I'm ungodly. Anyone else ungodly? That's right. We're all ungodly. And then it says, Jesus died for me, an ungodly person. I'm without strength, which means I'm weak. 
when it comes to being a godly person, being a good person, loving, caring, doing the right thing. I am weak in those things. I can't do them. And it says, when I was weak, when I was without strength, Jesus, his death was for me. If I think I'm godly and strong, guess what? I don't need his death. And then you know what? Sadly, I've, I know a lot of people that, that don't want to confess their brokenness, their weakness, or their ungodliness. And so the death of Christ doesn't mean anything to them. It's not appealing to them. And, and it's sad. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, I'm a sinner, so his death is for me. And he, it says, loves me. If you don't think you're a sinner, then your relationship with God is not free love and free grace. It's earned wages or a performance-based religion or reward, like that kind of a reward for your work. Your relationship with God is either one of those two. It's either free grace and free love because I'm a sinner or I think I please God, I think I can prove it to God, I think I can measure up to his standards, and so he, he, he needs to love me. He should love me. Because look how hard I try. Look how much I come to church. Look how much I give. Look how hard I try. Isn't it funny that in, a lot of times in church you find this type of person? The person that says, I... I am doing my best. I am trying my hardest. Why is God's love seem to be so distant from me? And a lot of times outside church, we find people who are like, I am a sinner. I'm broken. I'm weak. Again, his death means nothing to me when I think I've earned God's love without Jesus. God loves me because of what I do God loves me because of where I go to church. God loves me because of what I believe. The commitments I've made. Or, God loves me because I'm a sinner who needs his love and needs his healing. I'm a sinner. What is your identity? What do you claim God's love with? You guys all know God loves you. Okay. What do you claim it with? Why do you think God loves you? Because I'm better than my brother. Because I'm not Hitler. That's why God loves me. That's, that's wrong. It's not going to work. Because I'm a sinner, that does work. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save church people. Wait, don't know what I said? Oh, you guys, oh, I tried to sneak one past you. To save sinners of whom I am chief. Who's writing this? Paul, and, and he calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, I am 
the chief of sinners? Why do you think Paul understood and knew God's love so much? Because he really thought, he was convinced that he was worse than everybody else that he talked to. He was convinced that he was the chief of sinners. And as a chief of sinners, he gets the most love. That is why the love of God just oozes out of his blood and his sweat and his tears. Paul was convinced of his sinnerness. Are we? Are you? The more I embrace my sinfulness and brokenness and need, the more I will see his salvation through his grace and his love. You guys go to a church where we say, you're sinners. If you want a church that says, you're awesome, don't come here. Because the Bible says we are sinners. But in Christ, we are transformed and we are loved we're forgiven all good news one more verse oh no actually let's just get into our text now so mark chapter 2 says then he went out again by the sea and all the multitudes came to him and he taught them so as we've been seeing jesus he's going around and he's talking about god's grace and god's kingdom mark has already told us the content of all these little sermons He doesn't have to restate it. So what is Jesus talking about when he goes by the sea and he's teaching them? He's teaching them about God's grace, God's love, God's kingdom that we studied in Isaiah 61. So remember Isaiah 61. Whenever it says he taught them and then you're like, but what did he teach them? Remember, he's already said he went out through all of Galilee teaching them about God's kingdom, that it's come in Isaiah 61, that, that he's come to heal and to forgive and to love and to give grace. So these are all the things he... He's, um, it's like all Jesus ever does is teach them about this life that he's living. He's about that life. It's called, what Jesus is doing here is called being on mission. And that's something that, that we want to we kind of absorb. We want to be on mission. He has a mission. What's his mission? To save the world. And he has a strategy to communicate this glorious love and grace of God, not just in word, but Jesus is going to do it indeed by giving his life, his very life for the people that he's communicating to. He is so good at being on mission. And you and I have that same mission. Are, but are we on mission? When we pray, you know that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Why does he put that part in there about your kingdom That's the mission. That's our mission, is to build his kingdom. Not our kingdom. It doesn't matter who people know me. It doesn't matter if people think I'm great or not. My only mission, our only mission, is his kingdom. So we would rather retreat to to somewhere where people can't see us so we can pray for them than be out there in front so people can see us doing good deeds. Now, doing good deeds is important, but the work of the kingdom is done through prayer. So, are we on mission? Jesus was on mission. He prayed first. He got up early and spent time with the Lord. And then every time he was in front of people, he was teaching them about how much God loved them. 
how much God would do for them. And let's see what he continues, uh, what happens as he goes by here. As he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, what well, we know him as Matthew also, another name for him, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So this is Matthew, the author of the gospel of Matthew. And here we have his story in the book of Mark. It's also in the book of Matthew. Um, and uh, so The book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, was really written uh, to the Jews to prove that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And that's funny that God chose Matthew to write the gospel to the Jews because Matthew started as a tax collector who was pretty much the most hated and despised of any Jew. The Jews considered a tax collector a traitor. You are conspiring with the enemy, Rome. You're collecting taxes. You're working for them. You're supposed to be on our side. What are you doing working with the enemy? So he was called a traitor, a collaborator with Rome. He basically the worst Jew ever is this guy, Matthew. He would have been rejected by his family and nation, which is why he had to sit in his little tax collector's booth with no friends except other tax collectors. He was worse than a Roman because he was born a Jew and he was supposed to be on our side. Come on, Matthew. Yet God uses him to show Jesus is the king of the Jews. It's awesome. So Jesus invites Matthew to follow him. And Matthew was probably the brother of three other disciples. He was probably James the Less, Jude, and Simon the Canaanite, because they were all sons of Alphaeus also. We find that out from different parts in Scripture. So this this guy already had three brothers following Jesus. We'll just say that. And Matthew he probably knew who Jesus was. He probably had heard about Jesus, but he doesn't think he would be welcomed in Jesus' party in his company. He, his hopes of being a good, rule-keeping Jew are completely dead. He might say something like, I've made too many mistakes. I've committed too many sins. I've betrayed those I love. I've proved myself to be unworthy in every way. But Jesus said to him, come follow me. And so he arose and followed him. When Jesus looks at you and he calls you with his love and with his acceptance, there's nothing else to do except follow him. But it's sad that so many people get the idea that once Jesus calls you, he's asking you to work for him to do things for him, to give up everything that you love. And that's not not what it means to follow him. Now, he does have to leave behind his life, and he does have to surrender control of everything to Jesus, yes. But Jesus isn't asking for slaves. Jesus is bringing freedom to a slave. And that's, that's something very different. Jesus knew about Matthew's sin. It's very obvious. Everybody knew. And he knew that the other disciples would think he was crazy to bring a tax collector into their crew. But Jesus knows what he's going to make out of Matthew, and he knows what he's going to do with Matthew's sin. He's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. If you were Matthew, a sinner, would you follow Jesus? 
Well, sometime later we get to the next text of our uh, of of Mark. It says, and it, now it happened. It, this doesn't mean it happened right away. We actually know that this was several months later after. Um, Matthew had been following Jesus for a while. He had been learning how much Jesus loved him. He'd been growing as a disciple. He had given up his old life, and he was following Jesus, and he was so excited about what Jesus was doing. And so now it happened. He was dining in Levi's house. So Matthew decides to throw a big party. And many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. So Matthew throws this party for all of his worldly friends. It's fitting that the way Matthew has learned to evangelize is not by saying, sinners repent, but throwing a party, celebrating, rejoicing in the goodness and and love. Matthew is not bringing more rules or rules into their life that they could never keep. He's bringing free grace, free love, and free acceptance, and free food into their lives. What a good deal. If you want to be an attractive person in this world, there you go. Don't say, if you want to make God happy, you have to do this, do this, do this, and don't do that. And don't do that, 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 and don't do that. As true as those things might be, they're not the good news. Remember, that's the bad news. The good news is Jesus gives you free grace, free love, free acceptance, and free food. That's a good deal. And the only thing you need to qualify for all these free things is for you to be a sinner. If you come to someone and say, you're a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner. If you just did the right things, you wouldn't be a sinner anymore. (gasps) But that's the law. That doesn't work. All these churches, all these Christians trying to legislate morality, saying, let's just make it illegal to do bad things. How well does that work? Has that ever stopped anyone? Have you ever made a rule and your kids followed it? That's never happened. But we do our best. And we think our best actually works. No, God is not looking for your best He only sees perfection or sinner. If you're a sinner, you can have perfection as a free gift for Jesus, from Jesus. If you don't think you're a sinner, then you're trying to get that perfection on your own and it will never work, right? Right. So he throws this party with free love, free grace, free food, and and the response of all the sinners is clear. They love this Jesus guy. Oh man, he sits with them, he listens to them, he speaks with them, he tells them stories. He loves them and he likes them. Even though he's not like them, Jesus attracts sinners to follow him. He's always inviting these sinners to follow him. He doesn't send too many invitations to religious people. Or at least they don't respond to his invitations. But religious people are interested in this Jesus guy, aren't they? There's a lot of people who are very religious. Oh, I'm all about this. I'm about Jesus and church, and I go to church all the time. But let's see what what happens with religious people and Jesus. Because look what it says. And when the scribes and Pharisees, those are religious people, saw him eating with tax collectors and 
sinners. And they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, so get this. The the word Pharisee means separated ones. Separated ones. They separated themselves from everything they thought was unholy. And they thought everyone except themselves was separated from the love of God. We know that we make God happy because have you seen how much we tithe? Have you seen how hard we try to keep his rules? Have you seen me and my performance? Eating with sinners was a deep offense to these religious people. Because eating with someone in that culture meant that you desired to know them and have a relationship with them. It was a form of acceptance and love. Why do you think Jesus said, I want you to eat my body and drink my blood? It's not about being cannibal vampires. It's about fellowship and acceptance and love. Jesus is saying, if you accept me and my words, I accept you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've ever done, I accept you. These conservative religious people can't understand why Jesus would like sinners. Not just love sinners. Why do you even like them? They're stupid. They're dumb. They're dirty. They're gross. They're bad. They don't try hard enough. They're not as good as us. In fact, Jesus, why aren't you spending time with us? What are they? They're jealous. They're jealous of Jesus. They're jealous that his attention is on the stupid sinners and not on these beautiful Pharisees with all of their efforts, all of their rules, all of their Try hard stuff. They really think they're not sinners. They really think they're not sick with sin. That they don't need anything. And that's honestly how some of us come in here today. Coming to church out of obligation. Or rules or to impress, or to just not be yelled at, or simply to prove to God that we're trying our best. God will not have anything to do with us. If we are in that sad, prideful state, he will actually resist you, which means he will stand against you. He will keep you away from this accepting, loving arms, this grace that he's so wanting to give, he will push you out of the way so you don't get it if you won't confess your sinnerness this morning. So, these Pharisees try to plant this seed in the ears of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus says, "Ah, no, 
He takes care of it. He handles it. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. And I have come to call, not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus fully admits that his disciples and the sinners that he's eating with are sinners. And he's got no problem with it. They are sinners. No problem. But then he says that's exactly what qualifies them for his attention. His grace. He has a plan to give them grace. He has a plan uh, to transform them and to heal them. And it's not 10 steps that they need to follow. It's not more effort and it's not more rules. He does away with those plans because those plans never work. He's got a new plan. His very life and body and blood given for them. It's our sinfulness and our broken weakness that moves the healing hand of Jesus to reach out to us to accept us. James 4, 6, such a vital verse. It says, but he gives more grace. Well, how much grace does he give? More. Well, I need this much. He gives more. Well, what will I need at tomorrow? More. More. When it comes to God's grace, that's the only word that measures it. More. Fullness. More. Therefore, he says, in this verse, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Remember it said God resists the proud? That means God is like, I'm not dealing with you if you don't think you're sick. If you don't have humility, I can't deal with you. But he says here, he gives grace to the humble. He just called Matthew because he was sinner, a sinner. He was rejected. He was alone. Matthew had nothing. He was broken. He was a sinner. And that's why Jesus called him. And that same call goes out to all the world, but only sinners hear it. Only sinners can hear his voice call to them. Prideful, self-sufficient people have gum in their ears to the voice of Jesus. They can't hear. Why do I need Jesus when I'm the victim? I'm okay. I'm I don't need a doctor. And this loving, gracious call of Jesus, he calls, he says, sinners, repent. This call, sinners, I love you. Sinners, here's grace. This call gets an answer, and the answer is called repentance. That's the answer that Jesus gets. Now, the word repentance is big, scary Christian word that's like, repent, sinner, right? And do you think it means, oh, I got I to gotta, I gotta do something? But that's actually not what the word means. The word means to agree with God. That's literally the definition of the word repent. Agree with God. He calls you a sinner, so to agree with him is to repent and say, I am a sinner. Yes, that is repentance. That's the answer. Sinners, I love you. I'm a sinner. There's your answer. Just like that, it's that easy. We have sinned and we have no power on our own to stop being sinners. That's what real repentance means. Just agree with God. And this agreement places you into his loving hands and in his power, in his grace. He says he gives grace to the 
humble, right? And his power produces the change, which we could call healing, a doctor does, right? His power does this for us. If there is no change in our life, once we come to Jesus and once we start going to church or whatever, if there's no change in our life, then the repentance wasn't real. The repentance was me trying to change myself, not repentance of me agreeing with God and allowing him to change me. This is such a big deal because so many people get this message pounded into them. Repent means stop doing the thing you're doing. And that's not true. Repent means agree with God that it's wrong and you're powerless to transform yourself. Then you have placed yourself in his hand where his power and his grace can transform you through faith, which is what he says through all the gospel. If we don't agree with God that we are weak and sick, we can't be healed. For he is a divine doctor. He's the best doctor. Doctors can be annoying in this world. But he is always available. How many times do you call your doctor and they have to return your call because they're not available right now? He's always available. He always makes the perfect diagnosis. Anyone ever been misdiagnosed? Or they prescribed some medicine that didn't do anything good, in fact gave you side effects that were lame, that, that hurt? He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides a complete cure. And he even pays the bill. How about that? This doctor is glorious. He's the divine doctor. Well, how does this divine doctor do his work? How will he change the person who repents or agrees with him? Ezekiel chapter 36 gives us a, a, a view into how this process works on the inside. Maybe this is the medicine that he might use. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, I will, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jesus, the divine doctor, does his work, his doctor work, by doing a spiritual heart transplant. He's a transplant doctor. And the prognosis of this transplant is new life. A life that does what God wills, a, God, a life that's obedient to God, that keeps his judgments and does them, that's the prognosis of anyone who would allow God to do this. Do you want that life? Do you want a life that obeys God, that does his will? Or are you fine with the sinner life? Are you fine with your religious life? Neither of those are his life, the sinner life that just does whatever makes it happy, whatever it wants, or the religious life that, that thinks that life is found by keeping rules and obeying people. Neither of those are his life. His life is something far different, far superior. 
Who does this divine doctor heal? Let's look real quick at Luke chapter 11, verse 9. It says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son for, uh, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So this divine doctor does a heart transplant that is said was his very spirit being implanted into us. Then he says, who, does, who gets this? Whoever would ask. Do you have the faith to ask him for his spirit? Do I trust God is good? Like he said, like this father thing that he gave all these examples of a, of a stupid man, uh, earthly father, and, and the things that they would do. He's like, they don't even do cruel things like that. He says, I am actually a good, loving father. And if any of my children were to just ask me for this Holy Spirit, this healing, this new transplanted spirit, I would give it. Asking is the natural state of a child. They're always asking. And Jesus said we must be converted and become like little children. That's why we're supposed to have faith like a child. Faith that our God, the faith that our God is our heavenly father and that he's seriously just good to me. That he will just, even if I'm a complete loser, sinner, God will answer my prayer. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What was the qualification to get this living water, this Holy Spirit abounding out of our hearts, just flowing out of our heart? The qualification was thirst. Are you thirsty for it? Do you, thirst means you you. You know that you have a need. It's, a, it's your bodily uh, clue that you need water. You need something. So you have a thirst for it. And Jesus says, you need to have a thirst for my spirit. And to feel your need, we call that humility. Humility. Knowing that you're a sinner is humility. Knowing that you need to be saved is humility. This is all that's required. Then we come to the one who can save. Jesus even claims to be able to save us from any sin. Every sin will be forgiven except what? 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That means Jesus will forgive anything in the world, anything, unless you say, I don't need your Holy Spirit. I don't want you to do this heart transplant. I'm scared. I don't need it. I don't believe. Whatever that is, is this blasphemy saying, I don't need you, Holy Spirit. I don't need it. I don't need you. And that's the only way people go to hell. When they say, I don't want Jesus to save me. I don't trust that he really loves me. Or my hope, my trust, is in my own performance to try to make God happy, and that would give me the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work that way. Who is the Holy Spirit given to? Those who ask with humility and faith. So, our sermon was called, Sinners, Repent! But I hope that when we hear those two words now, it doesn't have that harsh guilt associated with it. It's not sinners, because I'm not a sinner. It's sinners, repent, believe, accept his love. We are the sinners. And we agree, we agree with God that we are sinners, and that's what repentance is. Isn't it a joy to follow a God who is this good and kind? And isn't it a joy to know that our God will hear our prayers and will accept us and will heal us? I want to share one thing that I learned this week. This is not part of the sermon. Don't have to pay extra for this, okay? God gave his blood to forgive. Jesus gave his blood to forgive our sins. The first six chapters of Romans all talk about sins, sins, sins. The actual deeds that you do are your sins, and Jesus gave his blood to forgive your sins. If you are ever worried about something you have done, think about the blood, accept the blood, drink the blood in, believe in the efficacy, the, uh, the um, sufficiency of the blood. Okay? But we have a second problem, is that we are sinners. We have sin. So the second from Romans chapter 7, 8, and 9, there's a, he doesn't say sins anymore, he says sin. We have sin dwelling in us. And that is our nature of being a sinner. And, and God doesn't just provide for, for your sins being washed away, he also provides for your sin to be taken care of. In other words, he knows that when he saved you, you were still a sinner. And you were still going to keep doing the stupid stuff. And you were still going to have this root inside you that you were broken. But he provides for it. And what does he provide? He provides the cross for that. So blood is what we, he has given us to, to drink, to meditate upon. His blood takes care of the sins. So anytime you're worried about the sins, the blood is your solution. But anytime that you're worried about your transformation from being a sinner... And, and you being sanctified, you being changed, he has given you the cross where your sinnerness was nailed. It's done. It's on the cross. I, I, I just, that last couple minutes, I've been reading this book called uh, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Go read it, dude. Oh, it's so amazing. One of the best books I've ever read, and I'm not even done with it. Uh, so anyway, uh, 
just a highlight from that book. I highly, highly, highly recommend that book. So, would you guys all stand with me? All right, let's pray. Father, we come right into your presence, and we are sinners. And we rejoice that we can repent and agree with you that we are sinners. I pray that no person in here would uh, be able to leave with their conscience still thinking that they are righteous before you in any way except through your free grace. Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with confidence and joy in knowing that we are your children, we are accepted in the beloved Son of God, that we are our old man, that sinner, was crucified on the cross. And we are learning every day to believe in that and to walk in that and to be fully uh, committed to your way and abiding in you instead of committed to our own commitments and our own promises and our own efforts. God, we are free and we rejoice and we praise the Savior of our souls who has done all for us so that we can just sing with joy and with free hearts. Like Matthew, God, we want to just celebrate your amazing free love. 